the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Some people say, well, Pastor Mike, why do we have to bother with Revelation 17, this picture of the harlot, the beast, and the dragon? We have to bother with it because it's in our Bible, because the Lord put it there, because He wants us to be prepared for the time of the end. We need to be informed Christians, not ignorant Christians. And so we must know what is going on between the woman and the beast in Revelation 17. That's Pastor Michael Oxentenko, and this is Reaching Your Heart. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, make sure that you call us at 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Someone is there right now to take your prayer request and to pray with you. 888-244-HOPE. Today's message on Reaching Your Heart is the first portion of a broadcast Pastor Mike entitles, The Woman and the Beast. That's The Woman and the Beast. We hope that you enjoy it. You can find it online at reachingyourheart.com. Here's Pastor Mike. Dear Father God, we ask today to be on the right side of things at the time of the end, not to be a part of a popular religion that is worldly, or an unpopular religion that's legalistic. We don't want any of that. We want to be part of the truth. The truth that Jesus himself exemplified. The word of God teaches that calls us to humility and reliance on Christ for our salvation. So Father, help us as we open the Bible to not just learn the way, but to be saved in it. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2012, Serga was a baby lion when she was found on a farm dying of thirst and hunger. She was part of a litter of three lion cubs born into a lion pride that went wrong. And when the two other cubs died, the pride rejected Serga, just left her to die, kind of like the Romans did. You know, they'd leave their babies to die on the trash heaps and so on. When the conservationist Valentine Gruner found little Serga at the point of death, The little lion weighed just four pounds, and she was fading quickly because of dehydration. With a little medical experience in his bag of tricks, Valentin ran an IV into the lion to hydrate the lion, to give it its glucose and this kind of thing so it wouldn't die on the spot, and it worked. And then the trick was, well, how do you nourish a lion when you aren't a mother lion, and you can't provide lion milk, and you can't go out and kill something? So over the next 10 days, he tried different kinds of food until he chanced upon the golden formula that saved the little lion's life. Here it is. You might want to write this down. It might work for you too. Eggs, cream, milk, vitamins, sunflower oil, and calcium. So those lion bones will get real strong. And then Serga got better pretty quick and happier too. And then a little fat as her human parent fed her far better than any lion could in the wild. Serga had it made. In time, Serga was called the most spoiled and well-fed lion in Botswana. Within one year, Serga had gained 175 pounds. And after that first year she was weaned, she started eating meat but not on her own. No, Serga was not a vegetarian lion. Serga ate frogs and other things. 
Valentin, with the help of his friend Mikael, slowly and methodically taught the young lion how to hunt. Imagine human beings pointing out the prey and trying to act like, go get it. Serga kind of looks at him. What do I do next? Teaching the lion how to hunt. In general, nature does not forge a kind relationship with people. Serga is proof that a lion can love a human and not eat that human for lunch at the same time. You should really go out of that. Don't think for a minute that a lion is a safe friend for a human being to have. Alexandra Black had an idolized picture of the animal kingdom, including lions. She had seen The Lion King, the film, you know, by Disney. She loved animals, and she assumed that they would love her. She lived in a fantasy, idolized world of caring for animals. On December of last year, -year 22-year-old Alexandra Black was pursuing her passion at the local animal conservatory when someone left the door open to the lion cage. She was cleaning the cage, unafraid of the lion. In minutes, an angry male lion, big mane, roaring, pounced on Alexandra and killed her. That girl who loved lions died in the jaws of the lion that did not love her at all. Now I'm sharing this with you because in the book of Revelation we find a beast power that the world has fallen in love with. But that beast does not love you at all. And in the book of Revelation, that beast will turn on a woman who is a harlot and destroy her at the end of time. Alexander was a dear person. But in the book of Revelation, we have the negative, the opposite here. So in the book of Revelation, the Bible describes a union between the beast and a woman that ends with the tragic death of the woman. It is a union that is so forbidden and so dysfunctional that will ultimately precipitate the end of the world as we know it. And some people say, well, Pastor Mike, why do we have to bother with Revelation 17, this picture of the harlot, the beast, and the dragon? We have to bother with it because it's in our Bible, because the Lord put it there, because He wants us to be prepared for the time of the end. We need to be informed Christians, not ignorant Christians. And so we must know what is going on between the woman and the beast in Revelation 17. Revelation 17 provides the continuation of the story of an unnatural and forbidden union between the beast power and the woman, the harlot church that existed in the past in the Middle Ages and that will return for a very brief period of time just before the coming of Christ. It is a relationship that can never last, that can never be blessed because it is an abomination in God's eyes and it does not have heaven's blessing on it all. And so we must avoid this union of the woman and the beast described in Revelation 17 in this strange and bizarre relationship. The harlot woman rides the beast. She has daughters that are just as bad as she is and she thinks that she will live happily ever after with the beast, kind of like beauty and the beast in the wilderness. The only problem is she's not the beauty and the beast is not a handsome prince. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation 17 verse 1. Let's begin our entry into the Scripture. The Bible reads, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who is seated upon many waters. Now what we have here really is a description of the last three plagues of Revelation 16. Plague number 5, 6, and 7 all focus on the judgment of Babylon, the harlot. And so we have an entire chapter that expands in real terms how Babylon comes to an end. Verse 2 with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, with the wine of whose fornication the dwellers on earth have become drunk. 
And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, bedecked with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her fornication. Verse 5, And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of earth's abominations. There's a whole lot in these verses we've just looked at. You read that, if you don't know the symbols, you go, wait, what's going on? You see, the Bible has compacted imagery in it. Every word matters. Every symbol is significant. The picture forms a collage. When once decoded, it just utterly makes sense. It's an amazing scene we see described in these few verses. In verse 1, one of the seven angels that held the vials of the seven plagues said, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And so the focus of Revelation 17 is the events that will transpire in the fifth, sixth, and seventh plague, which is the judgment of the harlot. In the context, the harlot is trying to act like she is married to the beast power. It's called a mystery in the context of Revelation 17. Marriage is a mystery. In the book of Revelation, the union between Jesus and his kingdom in the investigative judgment when he confesses his people before his father is called a mystery. So this is a mystery on earth. It's a bad mystery. While Christ is preparing his kingdom in heaven, which is the good mystery. And because she thinks herself older and wiser than the beast, the harlot woman attempts to control the beast. And so we see a dysfunctional relationship here in Revelation 17. It's clear in the context that she's not safe or blessed in this union, that it's not a good thing that she's with the beast. Why? Because God cannot bless a mystery marriage union that God has not ordained. The text is very clear. God will judge her because of this unsanctified union. So the question arises from the context, who is this harlot? Or what is this harlot in Revelation 17? The book of Revelation has been called a tale of two cities. The New Jerusalem and the city of Babylon, which are opposites. It is a tale of two women, a beautiful bride that will make itself ready for the Lamb, and a faithless harlot that will never go to the promised land, never get married to Christ. It is a tale of a love story between Jesus and His church, it is also the story of a forbidden and twisted infatuation between the harlot woman and the beast power that ends in ruin when the beast turns on the harlot and eats her, when the kings of the earth turn on her as well. So in the book of Revelation, the faithful bride very clearly symbolizes God's heavenly Jerusalem and by extension, the church that will be ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Revelation nineteen seven and 8. Let us rejoice and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. You know, you know how you know when you have the gospel of Christ? is when you're happy about your relationship with the Lord, and you're giving glory to God because he is the one who saves you. You know, people are talking all the time about how good they are at serving God, are not the ones who are giving glory to the Lamb. It's in our humility and brokenness that we are saved, and thus we can rejoice in God our salvation. So let us rejoice and give him the glory. Now look at verse 7 again. For, it says, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. In the book of Revelation, the marriage of the Lamb is the pre-advent investigated judgment. When Christ comes before his Father, confesses his people, is married to them in the final kingdom that will last forever and ever. And then he comes with that kingdom because he gets married in heaven. And then he returns to receive his bride and take her to the marriage feast. 
Verse 8, I like this. It says, it was granted her to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. In other words, she didn't get a robe because she was good at making a robe. She didn't get a robe because she was righteous in herself. God gave her the robe as a gift of righteousness because she couldn't produce the robe for herself. And it goes on to say, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We can't live for Christ We can't come to Christ. We can't be accepted by God unless we are in Christ. Our key to heaven is a robe that is a gift. And when the church figures that out, it won't talk so much about the church. It'll be giving glory to God and the Lamb for the white robe that is given to us. Here a bride symbolizes the faithful church that is clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Remember my sermon two weeks ago? What church fails just before the test, to have a white robe. It's the church of Laodicea. What church has a few in it who have a white robe? The church of Sardis. And the call in the sixth plague is to the church of Sardis and the church of Laodicea. Sardis is the sleeping church. It must awaken. Laodicea is the naked church. It must put on Christ and His righteousness. And so here we see that the church through persecution, adversity, puts on the white robe of Christ's righteousness and thus is ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 17 is not the story of beauty and the beast, but of a harlot and a beast Kind of like the bride of Frankenstein and the monster. Harlot in the Bible represents the people of God who have forsaken God for another lover. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah 1 verse 1. We'll see this borne out in the very first chapter of Isaiah. The Bible says, The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That means the people of God. In the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Go down to verse 21. Here he says, how the faithful city, that means Jude and Jerusalem, how the faithful city has become a harlot, she that was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. So the Bible teaches that when the people of God rebel against God, when they persecute others in the name of God, the faithful city that was Jude and Jerusalem, the holy city of Jerusalem, symbolizing the church in the New Testament, can become a harlot, Friend, there's no missing the picture in the Bible. The harlot of Revelation 17 is a church system that has forsaken Jesus Christ for an infatuation with the beast at the end of time. Revelation 17 is not the story of beauty and the beast. Revelation 17 is the story of a harlot and the beast. A harlot, a violent city that has forsaken its true lover, Jesus Christ. The second question arises from the context, what does the beast represent? The beast in Revelation has ten horns. We saw a beast in Daniel 7 that had ten horns. So go back with me to Daniel 7.23 and look at what a beast, especially this ten-horned beast, represents. Daniel 7.23, Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, it had ten horns. It had bronze claws and iron teeth in the context of Daniel 7. As for this fourth beast with ten horns understood, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth, trample it down, and break it to pieces. So we don't have to guess what the beast represents. It represents a global world kingdom order, specifically here, the fourth kingdom, that is the kingdom of Rome that emerged from the conflicts of antiquity. So Daniel 7.23, the ten-horned beast represents, as I said, a global world empire. The harlot and the beast together is a picture of a compromised church 
with blood on its hands, infatuated with a world kingdom order at the end of time, and the two get together in an unusual kind of way. Pastor Michael Oxentenko will be back in just a moment. Reaching Your Heart is a listener-funded program. We step out in faith to purchase airtime on this station because we believe God is working through this radio ministry to touch tens of thousands of lives. Each of our messages is prayed over, biblical messages of hope and Bible truth. To continue, we need your support. We do not have a large ministry fundraising machine. We operate totally by faith. Call our toll-free number to make your contribution of any size today. That number is 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Here now, once again, Pastor Michael Oxentenko. So when the church was married to the super state in the Middle Ages, and that's what Europe was, it was a super state, a divided world, nonetheless a super state. The church forsook its true lover, Jesus Christ, for the world. It no longer trusted in her true protector and her loving husband, Jesus. It no longer valued the power of her husband's word and the freedom of the gospel, which was the apostolic truth. The church left Jesus for infatuation of the world. And I'm going to tell you right now, we can leave Jesus the same way. If you think you can come to church and you can go home and live like the devil, do whatever you want to do, enjoy the entertainment of the world, and not take Christ into the other days of your week, you're missing it. We either belong 100% to Christ, or we do not belong to Christ. We are either committed to Him as faithful Christians, that doesn't mean perfect, but nonetheless committed to where we're striving for the right way in life, or we're self-deceived. And so the church, in the course of time, became enamored with political prosperity in the Roman Empire. It became the favored church, and it fell in love with the world. It became a harlot, and it became an instrument of persecution in the early Middle Ages, moving into the Middle Ages. So the church of the Middle Ages in time divorced itself from Christ as it chose the beast power that is the world kingdom order. At the Council of Trent in the 16th century, the official church of the Middle Ages repudiated the Scripture's authority. And it has never changed that position. It repudiated the teaching of Christ our righteousness as official dogma. And all you got to do is read the tenets of the Council of Trent and you'll realize that that church by its own decision made a divorce pact and left Christ and the Word of God in the Gospel. So in the context, the harlot sits on the beast at the end which symbolizes a world empire or a world kingdom order. She's not in love with Jesus. She's in love with the state, the superstructure of the world. In Revelation 17.1, she also sits over many waters that represent many peoples. Revelation 17.15, not 17.1, excuse me. And he said to me, the waters that you saw where the harlot is seated, what does the text say? Are peoples and multitudes, languages and tongues. God created the church to proclaim the gospel of his kingdom to the entire world. The harlot doesn't proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of the world. The harlot has corrupted the world. He wants to dominate the world, not set it free in Jesus. He wants to have control over the political structure of the planet. Jesus was very clear that his kingdom is not of this world. The harlot church is of this world. In the book of Revelation, the Bible pictures a corruption 
a corrupt form of the Christian church gaining control of the peoples of the earth, the governments of the world, by the crass manipulation of the kings of the earth. That's what it means when a harlot rides the beast at the end of time. So the harlot of Revelation 17 is described as a religious system in Christianity, a global religious system that seduced the monarchies of Europe in the Middle Ages. And according to Revelation 17, it will do so again at the very end of time. Revelation 17:2, she with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and with the wine of whose fornication the dwellers on earth have become drunk. James Bryce in his classic work, The Holy Roman Empire, describes the medieval union of the church to the state in this way. I'd like to share a little excerpt from the book. He says, since therefore the ecclesiastical organization could not be identical with the civil, it became its counterpart suddenly called from danger and ignominy to the seat of power and finding her inexperience perplexed by a sphere of action, vast and varied, the church was compelled to frame herself upon the model of the secular administration. Bryce records that the church twisted the arm of the state to stamp out religious pluralism in the Christian world in Europe. In the sixth centuries, the army of the Orthodox Church under Justinian and others came into the West. They butchered the Bible-believing preachers of the West who taught the Sabbath, the Scripture, the apostolic teaching of Christ our righteousness, and they forced the medieval church into the captivity of the Middle Ages. The preachers surrendered to the power of the pulpit to the intoxicating temptation that the men of the cloth could persuade unbelievers to the power of the police, the state, and the magistrate. This medieval model resulted in the death of millions of people, Christians and others, Christian men and women who would not surrender their Bible, Christian men and women who would not turn their back on the fact that Christ died for our sins, who would not surrender the sacraments and give up the cross, a perversion of the death of Christ, they died in the thousands, yea, millions, over the course of the Middle Ages. The Bible says the harlot committed fornication in the past during the Middle Ages with the kings of the earth. You know, it's not God's plan that the Christian church be seduced by the power of the state. It just isn't. It's not God's plan that we sell our souls to get what we want by getting to be liked by some political leader who's running for office. In Revelation 17, 2, the Bible says the kings of the earth became drunk with the wine of her immorality. The notion of a union of church and state can be very intoxicating for Christians because of three certain and understandable reasons. I'm going to go through them with you here. Reason number one, it feels good to think that our secular country can become Christian again, doesn't it? How many of you'd like to see a more Christian America? Raise your hand. Well, obviously, we love that. Reason number two, every Christian naturally wants to protect the culture from its slide into secular morality. So why not Christianize the state and make the world like us more? Right? Reason number three, it's right for Christians, some say, to want to be the salt of the earth, and Jesus said so, and make a difference in the world. So let's be the salt of the earth. Let's make ourselves salt in our culture. Let's force others to see it our way. But friend, Jesus never commanded Christians to force the world to love him. What makes ISIS and the caliphate so evil? I ask you that question, and they're evil. You know, this idea that that caliphate that was recently wiped out is not evil is nonsense. When you see those dear Christian people crucified, when you see others standing for Christ and they're beheaded, I mean, that's evil. So what makes it so evil? It's this. It's the idea 
that you can force people to bow down and become followers of Islam, that you can use the power of the caliphate to make them believe. It's the idea that you can use force to manipulate the conscience, to persuade the world you don't agree with to worship in the way you want them to. We have seen Christians crucified for their faith, and we've seen them marching along a shoreline where they would be beheaded for Jesus. As Christians, we must never use the same methods as the caliphate to get our way. In the Middle Ages, they did. The Christian church used the same methodologies to convince others to be Christians. In Revelation 19.8, the faithful church is clothed with Christ's righteousness, which represents a practical, a humble reliance on the righteous life of Christ for our living. Now, I don't know about you. In my life, I once made a journey through legalism, and I don't ever want to go back to that. This idea that I could just get perfect enough for the Lord to accept me, I used to believe that nonsense. And the more I tried, guess what? I realized how imperfect I really am. And I got very discouraged in my walk with God. And for a while, I gave up. And then God sent a humble gospel preacher who knew his Bible into my life. And he taught me that Christ died for my sins. The most important teaching of the apostolic church. That he was buried, which means my sins got buried with Jesus. And that he was raised for my justification, Romans 4.25. Which means that I am accepted, not because of Mike Oxentenko, but because of Jesus. If that will conclude the first portion of a message Pastor Mike entitles The Woman and the Beast. You can find it and many more messages online at reachingyourheart.com. That's reachingyourheart.com. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope that you'll join us again the next time we get together. Are you fascinated by the prophecies of Revelation? Have you wished you could understand prophecy better? Do the symbols of the Bible's last book baffle you? God's Last Altar Call is just the book you need. Mark Fenley clearly explains the events soon to unfold in this world. Be sure to call today for your copy, 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. The book is yours for a donation of any size. Thank you for your generosity. Your donations keep this ministry on the air. Again, thank you for your support, 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. From everybody here at Reaching Hearts Ministries, we want you to know that we do pray that God is reaching your heart.